Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. Today's topic, very apropos, I feel, for our first ever COVID December, is making friends with money. So as I talk about this, I know a lot of you are going to have reactions, and I'm, I'm very interested in people's experience of this particular issue. So if you have a question, do formulate it and put it through so that Rowan Mangan, the distinguished badger, can send it through to me during our Q&A part of the, well, it's more just a, no, you get cues. So yes, I'd love to have some of those up and going if you want some personalized advice on this extremely sticky topic. Yeah, money of all the things in the universe is one of the most frightening and maddening of things. They've actually shown when they do uh, studies on chimpanzees and they take away things that are directly good for them, like fruit or other forms of food, they take that away and they replace it with tokens that they have to accumulate and then trade for food. And once they do that, this really bizarre thing happens where the chimpanzees go mad over these tokens. They become warlike, they become querulous, they, they, their friendships fail, they become obsessed with these tokens, they can't get enough of them. So there's something about being one step away from the thing you actually need and having money be the thing in the middle or a token of some kind being the thing in the middle that makes us crazy even at the very AP level. So I've been coaching this my entire career, that one of the biggest things is, oh my God, what am I going to do about money? And it's always been one of the, the stickiest things to coach. Well, right now, in the middle of our first COVID December, we have everybody needing money for the holidays, money to pay their taxes at the end of the year, money to heat homes in the Northern Hemisphere where it's cold, um, but maybe not cold enough, if you know what I mean. Um, it's, it, and then the pandemic is back to its all-time peak. So things are looking scarier and scarier and the economy, far from reviving after a dip in the spring, is likely to take even more hits as we go. And you guys know that I think the entire economic engine of our society is being changed by COVID in ways that I think will ultimately prove good for the planet, but it's super scary for individuals. And a lot of people I know are really hurting right now. So I've been I've been informally coaching people around money issues a lot. And somebody brought it up in the gathering room last week. So I, I said, we're going to do that. So here's what I want you to think about. Uh, this isn't exactly interactive, but I really want you to be participatory in it. If you have any issues with money at all, like if you don't have as much as you want, for just for example, there may be one or two people listening to me who would like to have more. I know it's strange, but it happens. So I want you to sort of play along in your mind with what my coaches and I call the, the money metaphor game. It was my first big breakthrough with money when I was just like absolutely penniless, in deep debt, had three kids, no job, and no sense that I could access money. Like money to me was very, very mysterious. I'd grown up in a huge family with very little money and money was considered filthy and disgusting in my, in my sort of family mythology. So I was just baffled by the need for it and had no idea how to access it. But we all need to. 
And I tried all these, like I bought all these personal finance books and I self-helped my way through them. And like, but they were all about what to do with your 401k and your savings. And, and I'm like, what if you have negative dollars? What if you don't have a 401k? What if, like, how am I supposed to even start making money in the first place? Well, somewhere along there, I stumbled across the idea. I don't know if it was mine or it was in a book, but I thought money is actually, it's a concept, but it's also, if you think about it, it's a symbol of human energy. So if you buy a book that I wrote, what you're paying for is the energy, you're paying for the paper and ink, but that's the least of it, right? That doesn't, that is a small, small amount of the total cost. What you're really paying for is the energy that people put into it. I put in energy to write it, other people put in energy to put it on paper and to create the physical book and then to get it to you. And all of those pieces of energy are summed up in the dollars you give for the book. And then it's distributed throughout all the people who put their energy into it. So I thought, okay, well, if, if money is energy, what if it's conscious? Because I like to believe almost everything is conscious. No, strike that. I believe everything is conscious, full stop. So money, even though it's a vague conceptual thing, it must have a consciousness, especially if it's human energy. It must have an interesting sort of mind to it. And I asked myself, if money were a person, place, or thing, what would it be and how would I relate to it? And I remember the first time I did this, I thought, okay, money is a prince who lives in a castle a thousand miles from any place I've ever been. I have no idea how to get there. I know I have no idea where to locate it. I'm completely at a loss. I have no idea how, how to connect with it. And it was very discouraging. But then I started to think, okay, well, what, how would I find a prince in a country I'd never visited? And I thought, well, I could start like figuring out where it, what the surroundings look like around this prince in his tower that I've never met. And maybe I can start to figure out like detectives on TV, where something is by what's around it. So I thought, okay, what, what is around money? And I started to notice that some very negative energy circles around money in our culture. And there's very grasping, angry energy to it. But then I started to meet people who were sources of abundance. And I saw that money seemed to kind of flow to them. I thought, oh, these, this is the map of where money goes. It's almost like a topographical map of money. And so money changed into a liquid that was like rain coming down on the mountains and flowing downhill and going into rivers. So who were the people who had money? Sometimes there were people who like had big water towers and forced the water into storage. But sometimes they were just people who became rivers, who became sort of places where human energy liked to pool, where it liked to follow the, the pull of gravity. So I start, and I noticed that people like that were generally very upbeat and had very little fear around money, even if they were broke. And I had tons of fear. I was terrified of it. So I kept working with this metaphor thing. And then I thought, well, you know, in some countries, money is um, considered inherent in livestock, like sheep or cattle. So I thought, oh, if my money were a flock of sheep, I only have like two sheep, but I, if I treat them really well, they might have a baby. 
And if I treat the baby well, and if I keep bringing more sheep into the flock, they can be together and they'll feel safe and they'll want to reproduce. And I started to notice a sea change in my emotional relationship with money. And this is where I want you guys to go with me right now. As you start to think, if money is a person, place, or thing, what's, what is it and what's my relationship to it? Remember the four categories of emotion, mad, sad, glad, and scared. As you think about money in the abstract, your relationship with it, do you feel happiness, glad? Do you feel anger? Do you feel fear? Um, or do you feel despair, depression? Or some combination of them. I felt mainly despair with a lot of fear and um, not much anger, sort of anger because I couldn't access this thing that everybody else seemed to be able to access. Um, but as I started thinking of the energy of money as a flock of sheep, I became more loving. I know that sounds odd, but loving to the, uh, to the energy of the money that was mine. And then I started interacting differently in all these different situations. Like for example, I was trying to get a book published. And when I started thinking this way, it made me feel much bolder about writing query letters to agents because I knew no one in publishing. And I remember writing a query letter from a place of this will be so much fun to get more sheep to come play with the sheep I already have, the two sheep that I have that I actually owe to someone else. <laughs> and so I wrote a query letter that had a very different energy to it. And that was the query letter that made it through the slush pile in some agent's office and finally got me an agent and led ultimately to publishing books. So that got me excited. I'm like, I'm on to something here. So I started working more and more with the metaphor and I would check in every day or two. Like, how do I feel? Say an emergency came up and I had to pay a whole bunch of money to get, you know, the basement flooded and I had to get it cleaned out or whatever. The, the temptation to go back into despair and fear was always there and to make a negative metaphor, but I would actively grab the metaphor and say, no, no, no. You know, some of the sheep got out in the rain. That's the money that had to be spent, but it's okay. I'm going to go bring them back and I want them to know they're safe and I need them. So then I, I would suddenly think, okay, it's, it's repairing the basement is creating a safe place for more abundance. And all these little shifts in energy started turning the, the ship of my life. I talk about one degree turns that if a ship turns one degree in an hour, you won't notice that it's gone very far. But if it turns one degree north, say, every hour for six weeks, it's going to end up in a very different place. So my relationship with money began to change as I worked with it emotionally. And then I started having, I thought it was just an intellectual issue, but it wasn't. I think money is the most emotional thing human beings ever deal with. And that our relation to it is more emotional than intellectual by far. So I was wondering what you guys are coming up with and how we can, I just thought I'll, I'll talk about some of the things you bring up and let's see if we can sort of get a feeling in this group, in the gathering room group about how we can shift one degree by one degree toward an energy that actually, now I'm going to say it, it attracts money. There actually is an energy that does attract money and it's one of joyful abundance 
it's sharing, it's um, delight in the senses, it's delight in giving, it's all the stuff that Christmas is supposed to be about and the other uh, holy holidays of December, but it, particularly for Christians, Christmas is all about the joy of creating something beautiful and then giving it to someone else, even if they don't know you gave it to them. That is the energy that attracts money, that loving, generous sort of uh, celebration of the physical, physical objects. So generosity is the absolute key to this. There's something that I call the give-receive valve that people have related to money. And if you close it by refusing to receive, money won't flow through you. And if you close it by refusing to give, money won't flow through to you. So what you can do to open that give-receive valve is some people would say, well, give away some money and then you'll feel the generosity will, will cause you to attract money. I think that actually it tends to make some people afraid because they're always giving and they're never receiving. So here's the trick I'm going to ask you to play with yourself and then I will get to try taking your questions. And it is this, give something generous to yourself and then receive it joyfully and without complaint. And whatever your level of comfort is, it should be a nice, it should be something that's substantial enough that it feels like a really sweet thing but not so substantial that you are going to put yourself in the poor house. So for me, like, I love scented candles. So I could give myself a scented candle if I'm running into money fears and I'm afraid. It's very strange. By giving myself something like a scented candle, and it's something that is joyful to the senses, the physical body, and then receiving it joyfully and using it joyfully, I actually generate this positive feeling toward money and money then comes to me. I've been trying this. I've been doing it for about 30 years now. It's always worked. It's always worked. And I've seen it work for so many other people. So even though I'm not quite sure how the physics of it all spells out, I believe in this and I'd love you to try it. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Okay, so Marion says, I think for me money is like a toxic ex that I don't trust. So I need to figure out how to heal that relationship and make it a healthy one. Well, Marion, I think there is a bit of a hmm, I have a hmm about that. And my hmm is you're trying to build a healthy relationship out of something that feels toxic to you. And that means that you're putting yourself in harm's way. It's a, you're going against resistance. I would suggest that you officially divorce the kind, the money that has the vibe of your ex, divorce it. Money has different types of energy to it. Maybe there's money that's supposed to go to the wealthy and powerful, uh, you know, or I, child pornographers or something, they get money too, but I don't want that money. I want money that has a very different energy. 
So you might want to say, okay, goodbye to the money that feels like the vibration, the frequency of my ex. And hello to money that feels more like, I don't know, do you have a pet dog or goldfish or something, something you love, a tree, anything that is generative that you love and appreciate, you can shift to saying, wait, where does money associate with people and, and items like that? Like, where does money flow to good people, not people like my ex? This was really helpful for me. I started hanging, hanging around. I had a chance to be with people like Oprah who are quite well to do, but not from robbing anyone, not from hurting anyone. And I saw the way that the confidence that they had and the, the way they would choose different types of energy when they were doing their projects, it created different flows that brought different kinds of money to them. It's very, very interesting. Once you start seeing money as energy and interacting with it as a being, you can start to understand it in, in a new way. So that's what I do. I divorce the money that is like your ex and I would go out dating money that is wonderful like your best friends and your puppies and whatever. Okay, Marcia says, yesterday I sneaked into my office to do some work, but when I got there, our cleaning guy was there. He kept striking conversation after conversation about what he would do if he won the lotto. Uh, it was to the point of annoyance. I catched myself, I, I catched myself on time. Ooh, it says, it says, oh, and started to encourage him. And then I asked him to remember me if he wins some. This guy is bound to get the universe's attention. I think one of the one of the things that people think about money is that it's a that it's one big thing that is going to fall on you. I can tell you, I've coached people who haven't won the lottery, but say they've got they've invested in a company that went crazy and they suddenly have ten million dollars, uh, or somebody died and left them tens of millions of dollars. What's interesting is that they go through it really fast, like faster than you would imagine possible to the point where they find the level where money is acting the way they expect it to act. So if they expect to be broke and they get tens of millions of dollars, somehow they manage to make it disappear. They overspend, um, to use a public example, there's a professional boxer who went deeply into debt the year after he won about $40 million in prize money, he went through all of it. And he was just, he was at a place he, he'd always grown up in an impoverished situation and he hadn't shifted his mind. So even though the money was flowing to him, ostensibly it went away again really fast. So it's kind of like an exaggeration of the give receive valve. Money does what we expect it to. So if, have you seen like the dog whisperer it used to be a, uh, series on TV and it was this great guy named Caesar Milan. You may or may not agree with his dog policies, but one thing is when he, he loved dogs and when he went to work with a dog, he very much expected to succeed. And out of his love for dogs and his observation of dogs, he learned to carry himself with this authority. And even dogs that were very unruly with their owners, when he came into the room, they would be like, whoa, and he would say, see, this is calm, assertive energy. This calm, assertive energy is what dogs need. Well, calm, assertive energy, it turns out, is also what money needs. So thinking, okay, it's just going to drop on me like a meteorite out of the sky. Yes, meteorites fall, 
But by saying I'm just going to focus on the lottery or on the big score until it comes, I made that mistake for years. It's better if you say, I'm going to let it start trickling into my life and then become a stronger flow and then bigger and bigger until it's the Amazon River. And by, ex by adjusting your expectations a little bit at a time, you don't go outside into the realm of unrealistic thinking where you don't actually believe that it's even connected to you. You can say the word ten, the words $10 million over and over. It doesn't create the energy that brings the money. It's when you fasten your attention on it in the way Caesar Milan would get the attention of a dog. Like he would always make this noise. And he would like, and the dog would be like, what? Yes, I am right here. And it's because he loved dogs and knew what would get their attention. And he believed that they would respond to him in that way. So even if they didn't, he would work with them until they did. But Marsha, I love this story. And I'm sorry if you feel pounced on. But the big score myth is one of the things that keeps money out of people's lives. Because they won't let it in in small ways. Mine decided it wanted to come in in very small ways. And then it just slowly built up. Okay, let's see. Jessica says, I named money a peacock because it's always about animals. <laughs> I like the male and female energy combined. Yeah, so how would you attract more peacocks? Like, <laughs> I have a friend who sent me, he's, uh, he's in his 70s, very sophisticated gentleman. And um, he lives in California and peacocks were coming into his yard. And he got himself a massive water gun and chased peacocks around the yard trying to get them to go away while his wife filmed him and I sent, they sent it to me. And I remember thinking, it's really interesting because this is a house that attracts beautiful things. The people in it, the two authors who have created a lot of good in the world, they love other humans and they give a lot of money and they receive a lot of money and actually peacocks were coming onto their yard. Interesting little coincidence there. But how do you create a place that's nice for the peacock money? Feel for the energy of it and say, okay, what do peacocks like? Do they like warmth and light and smiles and happiness? Then create that. Do they like calm and spaciousness and like clean Scandinavian design? Change physical circumstances to match what you feel will draw the, the interest of the money being in your mind. Um, Marianne says, it's a river. I've found the more I give, the more it comes my way. Absolutely. On one condition, if you give joyfully, that's what makes it come. If you give in order to make it come more, it's just a mechanism of sort of bribery and it doesn't respond to that. You have to give joyfully to receive joyfully. So that's another really good way you can start the flow is to give a small amount to someone that will really, really benefit from it and feel joy in their receiving. And, but don't give so much that you feel impoverished. That will make you clench up and it will go away. Okay, <laughs> for tracing money is a whackable, you know that, that game where the money pops up and you try to whack it, but you're always a little bit behind. Um, so if I were tr coaching Tracy right now, I might say, all right, well, the great enemy of whack-a-mole is tension. Because if you're thinking, it's going to pop up there and then I have to hit it. You're not going to get it fast enough. But if you get out of your head and you just allow your body to respond, it responds instinctively much more quickly than if you had to think about it. 
So one thing, if money is a whack-a-mole for you, relax, relax, relax. Think about it less and get more loose about it. Get more playful about it. Money loves to play. And you'll find that when you relax in a whack-a-mole game, you start to hit the mole much more. And when you relax in the money game, you start to hit the money much more. Um, oh yeah, Tracy says money often for me equals security. That's what everybody thinks. But in fact, this is even more important. I'm so glad you brought this up. Listen to me, <laughs> really listen to me. I wish I could tell people this and have them just get it. You don't feel secure because you have money. You have money because you feel secure. Obviously that's not true across the board, but um, I have seen people over and over run out of money, entrepreneurs, for example, who make big gambles and feel completely confident that they're gonna make it back. And they feel secure through the whole thing, through the whole boom and bust cycle. I've also seen many more people who have plenty of money and are constantly tense about it. They're just, they're constantly scared and insecure. So that is a little reversal that will help you a lot if you think money loves security, money is security. If I feel secure, money will come find me. Okay, here's, is this the one Ro just handed me this from Emily? Um, nope. It, I think I shifted it here. Is it Amy? I, Amy says, I love this way of thinking of money, but two questions spring to mind. One, systemic inequality. When I think about changing my energetic relationship to money, I hit hard against the reality of my own right privilege and why it is that systems around me will doubtless be more inclined to bring joyful abundance to me and people like me than to people of color. How does that reality of the world we're in correlate with your energetic approach? Yeah, the energy of money, the, the money I was talking about earlier that goes to the people who are uh, the dominant ones in the pyramid of power. I talk about that all that all the time. That money never did make it to me, I have to say. But I know that as a person in a privileged systemic position, it's gonna come to me more easily. I have coached a lot of people in other situations. And the most dramatic for me was I coached homeless people uh, in the streets of Phoenix, homeless heroin addicts, and they had trouble coming up with money to, for rent. They were like living under bridges. And then also um, people in Africa, either in the slums or in rural parts of Africa where there's very, very little money for anybody. I, I wanted to go to people who had nothing to see if this worked. I, I talked to a group of women in Kenya who had come out of poverty and I sat down with them and I said, okay, and they brought 300,000 people from poverty into economic security. And I said, how did you do this? What's the operative variable? They were giving micro loans. They were doing these systemic things to try to give people opportunity, but they were tiny things. They just didn't have much to work with. And what they said completely surprised me. They sat me down and they said, it is the story. It was the story in our minds that we couldn't come out of poverty. And then somewhere along the way, each of them had met someone who changed the story of their relationship to money until they thought, they said, you can, you can make this, you can run a vegetable stand and then start sewing or, you know, it was different for every person. But they all talked about how the, the story changing was the first thing. 
And then in Phoenix, when I was talking to heroin addicts, I found out that the people I was coaching were spending about $200,000 a year on heroin. And I was like, $200,000 a year and you can't afford rent? And they were like, oh yeah, you can't get, you can't get a house, man. You know, I've been to prison so many times and they were very largely disadvantaged ethnicities and, and from repressed, oppressed groups. And then I said, well, where's the money coming for the heroin? And they would say, oh, well that you, you have to get that. You got to understand you have to get your heroin. And I'd be like, whoa. <laughs> how does this work? Even if they were doing it by means that weren't particularly um, legal, they were doing it really successfully when they expected it. When money was heroin, it was their friend. When money was money, it wasn't their friend. So absolutely, there is an extreme inequity in the way money flows to people. And I am definitely near the top of the economic pyramid, and I'm really grateful for that. But I've also gone into populations looking to see if this energetic approach works. And it does, it does, it does, you guys. So there's one other question that Amy had. She says, uh, a semi-joking question. What is it with certain people who are absolute 100%, and then she uses a swear word, um, who are unbelievably wealthy? Yeah, I actually went and looked at that too. I went to the unbelievably wealthy folks and said, what are they doing with it? And I remember talking to someone once, who had hundreds of millions of dollars. And I said, how do people, what do people think about when they don't worry about money? And she said, I have no experience of that. And I said, well, you know, you were around these really rich people because they don't have to worry about money. What do they do instead? And she said, they do nothing but worry about money. And all these experiences together from the poorest people, some of the poorest people in the world to some of the wealthiest, all of them convinced me that it is the feeling of security that we're really after and the feeling of security that we establish in our hearts that brings physical abundance. And I just want to leave you with the idea that that way of approaching it comes from spirit. And it's almost blasphemous in our culture to say that it is a spiritual, there is a spiritual component to money. But security, peace, safety, the trust in a world that is apparently hostile to us, even though bad things happen, these spiritual values that come from spiritual practice put us in a place where we start to feel secure in general. And security brings the energy of money more than any other thing. So if it's sheep, the sheep want to feel safe. If it's the prince, the prince wants to feel safe. If it's the river, the river flows to the place where safety and security live. So go to peace first, then tinker with your thoughts about money and see if you can soften up the sharp edges as we go into the holiday season and a time of COVID. And just, you know, juggle this, play with it, um, spend some time doing the exercises that I, I've talked about during this particular gathering room. And maybe you can come back later and say, hey, it worked. Something I shifted my energy about money and now money is flowing into little tiny bits of my world. And one degree by one degree, you end up feeling very, very secure and knowing that money is a good friend that will always be there for you. <sighs> so good luck with this. I wish I could convince you right now but if you try it, I think you'll end up seeing that it works. So mwah, mwah, mwah. thanks for coming.
Hope you're all doing well out there. Stay safe and have a really happy week till we meet again. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star.